0: Hi, thanks for joining me. This is another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. This time I'm going back to the shelf for a second look at the Holman Bible Handbook. Um, Subtitled here, well a lot of subtitles on the front. Comprehensive, user-friendly, up-to-date, accents the Bible's broader ethical and theological teachings, outlines and commentary on key themes and sections, full-color photos, illustrations, charts, and maps. And then at the very bottom, brings the ancient world and timeless message of the Bible to light for contemporary life. This is a beautiful book, uh, hundreds of pages. It's, uh, it's long, it's in-depth. Uh, people like Urban Lutzer praises it, calls it a user-friendly Bible handbook, invites you to grasp the content of the Bible in its cultural, geographical, and historical setting. Um, J.I. Packer says it's excellent, the work is informative objective and fully in touch with present-day scholarship uh, D James Kennedy said Holman has reached a new plateau plateau of excellence with its uh, handbook um, all right so enough of that I'm going to look at a section here that I like and and it does tie into apologetics Now by the way this is not necessarily a standalone apologetics book this book is a look at the entire Bible that tells you, section by section, what's going on in the Bible, uh, beautiful pictures and things like that. But they have this one section I thought um, some of you might find interesting. It's called, just two pages long, it's called The New Testament and Criticism. And they point out that scholars who really want to study the Gospels, so we're going to focus on the Gospels, use a lot of different tools and methods of biblical criticism. By the way, criticism, people always think of uh, putting it down. Uh, criticizing it, saying, no, that's not right. That's, that's not what they're talking about here. Criticism is a neutral word. It just means analysis. And they said the different branches of criticism that the scholars use are going to fall into three major categories. One is methods common to the interpretation of all written texts. Okay, so all written texts. So several things scholars do are exactly the same, you know, whether or not they realize it. Uh, in fact, says so valid interpretation of any written document requires three important foundational steps. So here are the three foundational steps. First, if the original document is not available, I mean that's the case for the Bible, but of course that's the case for Caesar, it's the case for Tacitus, Josephus, and all these people. The, the originals have long, long ago crumbled to dust, and they've been copied and copied and copied. And this is just me talking, but some people worry about that. And they say, well, shoot, I sit down, I copy off something, I never know if I get it right. Well, when the, when the Hebrew people copied something, and the Greek people copied things, they were very, very careful. So it's a little different than us copying down a shopping list or something like that. But anyway, so if the original document is not available, readers need to know how reliable are the copies they have. Yeah, exactly. Dan Wallace is a master of this. I would suggest if you have a chance, read anything by Dan Wallace or watch him on YouTube videos. He takes on people like Bart Ehrman, does an excellent job. Plus, the guy is just downright funny. So you might find that interesting too. So you need to know how reliable the copies are. And so what you want to do is, if you're scholars, to try to reconstruct what the biblical authors actually wrote. Now, what's that called? Textual criticism. Now, that's Dan Wallace. So if you just type in textual criticism, I bet his name will come up. Now, that's really important. These uh, people that wrote the Holman Bible Handbook say this is really important for people that think the words that are in the Bible were inspired by God. So you want to get back to what the biblical authors actually wrote. You try to do that through textual criticism. Now, what they'll do is they'll lay out a lot of these different manuscripts and see, uh, you know, different, families of manuscripts, and see which ones seem to be older and uh, well-received, and things like that. Okay, back to the handbook here. They point out that most modern translations of the Bible have footnotes that will tell you, as a reader, where there are some differences among the different uh, documents they have. So they said, for example, in the Gospels, says scholars have discovered that the earliest and most reliable texts don't have these portions, and I bet you recognize them. It's the long ending of Mark, that's Mark 16. starts in verse 9. John 7:53 to 811. Do you know what that one is? We may have talked about it before. That's a woman caught in adultery. Or Matthew 6:13, second part of that. So that's pretty short. Now here's the good news. Everybody knows that these are problematic. It's not like looking through the whole Bible, or the New Testament people going, gee, I don't know what's right. I don't know what's correct. I'm not sure. Uh, any of these verses could be wrong. No. No, they've, they've established everything except just a few of these. And by the way, these few that they do find, these they're called variants, these differences in the manuscripts. These different wordings have nothing to do with any important theological feature. So for example, they haven't come across a verse that says Jesus never did rise from the dead, and have it go back and, and be something that you could trust uh, implicitly. No, these are really, really minor differences. Most of the differences, in fact, that they that you come across in these uh, Bible manuscripts have to do with spelling. All right, anyway, let's go back to the handbook here. They said. A reliable translation is obviously essential if you don't know the language. So if you don't know the Greek of the New Testament, you've got to have a translation. And they said those range from really literal to highly paraphrasing. Paraphrastic, I guess the way you put it. So the Gospels are written in a narrative form. And they point out probably what you want is something that's smooth and idiomatic rendering like the NIV that, that can help you out. They said there's something called historical criticism. That seeks to learn about, as you would guess, the background of the author and the audience and the culture at the time that the document was written. So you want to know what was going on in the political world. What was going on in the social world? What religious uh, features were happening at that time? So if you don't have that discipline, it's too easy uh, to read modern understandings of events back into the ancient uh, texts. So it said, for example... I think this is a great example. Most people today think of the Samaritans as good guys and the Pharisees as bad guys, right? The Samaritans help people. They said in the Gospels, everyone except Jesus viewed them as exactly the opposite. So for the people of Jesus' time, the Pharisees were the wonderful people. That's why it was so shocking to hear Jesus take off and rip into the Pharisees. And the Samaritans were hated. It would be like the people of ISIS, or Hamas, or something like that um, today. So people were really revolted by that idea back then, which makes the story of the Good Samaritan really powerful. Okay, so those three areas, remember we we're talking about uh, the different branches of criticism. First branch was methods common to every written text. Everybody who looks at any old document, you know, whether it's Tacitus or Thucydides, they have to know. How reliable are the copies they have? By the way, the Bible has way more copies than anything else. They want to find a reliable translation and they need to know historically what was going on at the time. All right, so let's pick up number two. What about methods that are pretty much unique to the study of the Gospels? Now, in other words, these are not things you'll use with Thucydides or Caesar or things like this. One area that they'll spend time on is trying to figure out the similarities and differences among what are called the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it says there's some kind of literary interrelationship among them. And so people have spent tons of time and effort trying to figure out who influenced who in this group here. So most people today believe that Mark wrote his Gospel first and then Matthew and Luke used some of Mark as they wrote theirs. And then there are other people who also believe Matthew and Luke had another source that we don't know about today, but has been labeled Q from the German Quevel for source. So it says um, that illuminates maybe some way that we can understand how the gospel writers use God's spirit to guide them. And then we can see what a particular writer was emphasizing when we can see how he redid his sources. Let me give you one of my examples uh, that I think it's not in the Holman book here, but it cracks me up. In uh, Luke, it talks about the woman that had an issue of blood, and Jesus healed her. And that's about all. said she'd had it for a long time. But if you go to Mark, and Mark reports on the same situation. He said she went to a lot of doctors, and none of them could help her. Isn't that interesting? He mentions the doctors. Luke, who apparently was a physician... Did not mention how doctors had messed up because <laughs> that's those are his people. Anyway, so that's the difference among what they call the synoptic gospels. Then there's something called form criticism, looking at the gospels. And that says, take a look at the gospels. They're not really all the same kind of material. Jesus' teaching it has things like parables and proverbs and commands and a lot of figures of speech. And so if you look at the narratives of his life, what else do you find? You find miracle stories. You find controversies with his opponents and so on. So scholars try to isolate these different forms to understand the kinds of rules, just like today. If you write a detective story versus a poem, you have different rules that are in play there. So here's a third area where we're still talking about people that are using methods with just the Gospels. There's something called redaction criticism. And that focuses on the emphasis of each of the gospel writers. Redaction just means editing. So if you look at the way these three authors edited their sources sources and arranged their material in different ways, you can learn about their concerns. I mean, after all, God gave us four gospels. So you think, all right, well, these people must have edited and shaped each of those four for a particular purpose. So redaction critics, for example, will say that Matthew shaped his material to stress Jesus as a son of David and the king of Israel. But Mark highlighted Jesus as a miracle worker and a suffering servant. And Jesus, Jesus is always on his way someplace. You know, he, he went here, he went there, he went someplace else. Luke focuses on Jesus as really human, and he cared for the outcasts. So we, we meet a lot of women, for example, and uh, those who are sick in the book of Luke. And John wants to shape his work to show Jesus as the Son of God equal to the Father himself. All right, now here's the third section of this part about New Testament criticism. There are newer methods of biblical study not limited to the gospel. So they're using some different approaches. Now, they may or may not catch on. And they come from other disciplines of scholarly study. So here's one. Midrash criticism. It tries to understand the way the New Testament writers quoted or alluded to the Old Testament. There's something called canon criticism, and that explores the way the interpretations of the book of the Bible has changed once it got included with other writings being viewed as Scripture. So, for example, it says we often forget to read Luke and Acts. They are a two-volume unity, but they're messed up because John got jammed in between them. And so toward the end of this little section here, they said, Nearly all these methods that they talk about here could be called literary criticism, but uh, so some people even look at the deep structures of the texts, uh, exploring the underlining relationships between all these characters and actions, and uh, they talk about even analysis involving psychology and sociology and economics. I mean, the the Gospels can be viewed as justifying all sorts of ideologies. You know, like Marxism women's liberation, Western capitalism. People can can tweak these documents to come up with these things. And they point out at the end of the section here every one of these methods that's been covered could be and has been abused. Yes, it has. But it says each method, though, has given scholars great insight into the meaning of the Gospels. So I want to spend a few minutes with this because you're going to hear things like redaction criticism or you're going to hear about textual criticism. Uh, you may hear... Um, midrash criticism, things like that. So just be aware of it. It's ways to look at the Bible, look at the Gospels in a fresh way. We need to be careful. Some people, like they said, will twist them. Uh, If a Marxist reads it, he will try to see it in a Marxist light. So we just have to be careful, but we've got to be careful with all this uh, material. Well, thank you, and uh, have a good rest of your day, and we'll do another podcast soon.